0: Nice to see everyone. Yesterday, I ran into a, a concrete block in a parking garage, so that's why I'm wearing my... It was exciting. Blood all over my face. I, wa- I walked up to the uh, counter, the place where we were. It was just like a napkin on my head and blood flowing down. The person wasn't really looking up. I was like, do you have a Band-Aid? That's what I said. And. Uh, <laughs> So it was kind of fun. It was a little, little venture yesterday, some excitement in my life. Great to see everybody. If you're a guest, my name's Ryan. They call me the pastor. Um, Let's <laughs> we'll see. Let you be the judge of that later on after this nonsense. So um, if you are a guest, maybe this is your second or third time here. Um, I am not black uh, or a really good preacher uh, like the two guests that we had the last two weeks. So I'm sorry to disappoint. Um, but that's just is who it is. But they're my friends, and that's why I love that they come. And they 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 raise the level of excellence here. So it was good. Hopefully David will be back within in a couple of months and speak again or so. And, of course, Ricky will be back next year. So it's been good. We've had this, like, season of kind of, like, leading up to this moment, we've had, like, lots of energy in the football game and football Sunday. And now we're kind of entering the season of Lent. So we're just kind of slowing down a little bit and taking a nice deep breath. So maybe take a breath with me because, you know, it's like this season, it gets busy. It's kind of weird, especially for those of us that work in church world. But then it's also a time that we're supposed to be reflecting a little bit and just kind of breathing. And so that's what we want to do this, uh, this season and this series as we talk about bending our hearts. Uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever experienced this thing called a new normal? Have you ever heard of that phrase? Oh, this is the new normal, right? It's kind of like when you have a life-changing event, something takes place, or maybe you make a commitment to do something, be a part of something, and in that moment you are just kind of overwhelmed and you say, how will I ever be able to handle this? Y'all ever had that like moment? Maybe of your own volition, like you chose it, maybe it happened to you. Right, your life is going along in a rhythm. You just kind of know it. It's a nice 4-4 count, 72 beats per minute. You're not racing along, it's just a nice smooth, maybe even it's 6-8, you know, it's just got that flow. One, two, three, four, five, six. I can do this in life, it's good, you know? There's something about that 6-8 time, right? And then, bam! Something happens. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe a layoff. Maybe a promotion maybe a baby. I saw some soon-to-be parents walking into the space today. It's exciting stuff, but like, oh my goodness. Maybe you make the decision to go back to school. Maybe you make the decision to move from Maine to Colorado with a 15-year-old and a 14-year-old. And you go, what were we thinking, right? Right before a pandemic. And these, these experiences in life, these challenges, right, they come into our world, and what comes with them? A little bit of chaos. A little bit of chaos in our ordered life comes, whether it's a positive or a negative experience, it happens, and these experiences, they move us, they challenge us, they force us, like Ricky said last week, if you were here, where he said, you know, they, they move us out of comfort and into chaos, right, out of comfort and into chaos. And you're faced with this choice, right? But here's what's fascinating about this in our lives, the resiliency of, of, of humanity, right? Is that that happens, but what happens a lot of the times is we figure it out, don't we? We figure it out. And we, that's where we get the phrase new normal from, right? Because we kind of figure it out, and what was so chaotic and what felt so overwhelming, all of a sudden it just becomes normal. And it's in this new normal that chaos actually, oddly enough, becomes comfortable. And maybe you've experienced this in your life. Like there's a season where you're you're heavy in it, right? And people look at your life from the outside and they say things like, I don't know how you do it. And you're just like, how do you do what? This is life. It's just life. Like you've adapted, you've adopted, you've moved in. And in the new normal, chaos becomes comfortable until what happens? Until we meet the next challenge in our lives, right? Until we face that next moment. So think about it like this. Um, how many of y'all have gym memberships? Notice I didn't ask if you went to the gym, I just said, how many of you have gym memberships? So we can all be honest, right? Somebody asked me, I was with Ricky and we drove by, like he was like, oh, what's that? If they're, you know, do you have a, do you go to that gym? And I just answered, oh, I have a membership there. <laughs> That's all I said. I so I'm not gonna commit perjury, you know? Um, <laughs> to the best of my recollection, I do not know. Um, but like think about like you create a new exercise routine, you join a gym and like starting that activity can feel like a lot of upward lifting, the flywheel principle, like a lot to get it going. You know, maybe you don't know what you're doing and you gotta learn or you gotta try something, right? Uh, uh, maybe it's a, 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 ha- a ha- habit, a hobby that's kind of a physical in nature, and you gotta learn and new muscles are working, right? So there's kind of chaos in there and all of a sudden like after a few months you find a rhythm like you incorporate that time into your life and what was real chaotic and what was really hard to do, it just happens now. And then what happens if you're not careful? You just get comfortable. And what do you start seeing? Physically, you start seeing the return on your investment go down, right? The gains, like when you first start in there, you're like, oh, I feel great and look at that. There's like a, a bicep under there, you know? I've never said that in my life, but they tell me that everybody has them. One day I'm waiting for mine to appear, but, um, right? Like, like, but we can just get comfortable. And then we just start going through the routine again. This is true of relationships. How many of you have at least one friend? That's good. We start there. One friend. But you get into a relationship. It could be a romantic relationship. And what happens? Like we're, we're digging in and it's like, oh man, now I've got to think about you know, what this person needs in their life and what they want and goodness gracious, and we're invested and all of a sudden it just kind of gets comfortable. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Um, Maybe you've been married longer than a minute or two um, and you find yourself kind of just in cruise control. Anybody ever been in cruise control in a long-term relationship, romantic or otherwise? No, just me, wow, you all. (laughs) Let's just keep that to yourself, okay? (laughs) Glad my wife is in Puerto Rico right now to know that I'm the only loser in the room. That's wonderful. But we do, we just kind of slip into it to a certain degree. And and what's amazing is this this can happen in any of the major arenas of our lives, and particularly our spiritual or emotional life. So one thing you just gotta know about me is I, I I, I kind of throw spiritual health, emotional health, and even mental health, I kind of put that into a bucket together. And this is true of our spiritual lives, that we can actually make a commitment that feels really heavy lifting, and then it can become normal, and we find ourselves just kind of settling for the reality of where we are. Perhaps uh, we make a commitment, like we talk about around here, to really live this peacemaking life, right? We really say, okay, this life of faith, what Jesus actually was here, when Jesus walked this earth, the message of the historical Jesus was about peace. And what's about how to live in nonviolence? And what's about how to, how to upend systems of oppression when you have no power? And you say, you know, I really wanna be a part of these five and so we make commitments, right? Maybe you make this commitment to dive into it, right? And you're gonna attend church, or you're gonna volunteer, you're gonna give regularly, you can sit down and say, okay, we're gonna give this much every week or every month. And maybe you say, I'm gonna lead a peacemaking program in the community, I'm gonna get involved, right? And that can feel like heavy lifting. If you've ever, you know, in church world, we have these things called small groups, right? And you might say, well, I'm gonna lead a group, I'm gonna get a group of people together and we're gonna read this book or we're gonna watch these TED Talks or we're gonna study this and, or we're just gonna get together and support one another. And you can feel like, oh, that's, that's really heavy lifting at first, I've gotta figure out what night of the week or the month, every week, every month, it just keeps coming and coming and <laughs> coming. I mean, man, I've led small groups. I'm like, it's Wednesday again? These people are showing up at my house again? Like, what is happening? We need an eighth day of the week. I need a break. Then you do like the two week, the every other week thing. And you're like, is it already every other week? <laughs> They're like, let's go to once a month. Once a m- Is it February already? They're coming back, right? But we can just settle in. And Lent is this annual opportunity. It really is this amazing point in time that our tradition gives us where we can assess and challenge our spiritual life where we can actually take a moment to contemplate the reality of where we sit the reality of how invested we are in our emotional and spiritual health to contemplate that and then we can take action like lent is not just a season of contemplation it really is action where we're doing things because i think without seasons like lent and we'll just talk about lent particularly without lent we get spiritually lazy y'all ever been spiritually lazy I'm not talking about not going to church, okay? Nobody wants to raise their hand in church and say that. I'm just talking about just like, well, I haven't, I'm just not really thinking about my spiritual personhood. I'm not really thinking about my soul. And again, I'm, I'm talking about these as metaphors for that part of us that nobody really sees, yet we're always in conversation with it. <laughs> Y'all ever have like a conversation in your head with somebody and the other voice sounds just like yours? Like that's soul care, <laughs> right? That's what that is. And sometimes we just don't, we get into this mode. And Ricky talked about this this dangerous place that we can live in when he challenged us to move from comfort to chaos. And participating in this Lent season is really a very tangible way that we can do that, that we can push ourselves out of the boat like Ricky talked about last week. So let's just talk about the Lent season. What is the Lenten season? Because some of us may have had no experience with Lent, and some may have. Some maybe have had like a bad experience. You grew up in a tradition that was just, um, maybe you felt like I was just going through the motion of stuff. So what is it all about? What does this Lenten season mean for our lives? Like me, maybe you're like me. I didn't grow up in a church, in a tradition that really considered Lent. I mean, I was in my 20s when I first heard the word Lent. I was like, what is that? (laughs) And mind you, I grew up in a pastor's home. Right, so I just wasn't familiar with it. Like, what is this Lenten season all about? I mean, our tradition, we loved Easter. Don't get me wrong. How many of y'all grew up loving Easter? A little Easter bunny action, nice new outfit on Sunday morning. The music was always great. It was like, why can't we do this every week? <laughs> like, the sermon was always good. Church was shorter. It was like, oh, wait, that, I'm just, yeah, you know? So we loved Easter, celebrated Easter. But what I learned as I kind of thought about it, and as I grew into this season of Lent, as I got older and hopefully a little bit wiser, was, wow, you can't really appreciate Easter until you walk through the Lent season. The Easter kind of loses its impact and power. It's super powerful, don't get me wrong, it's wonderful. One of the greatest metaphors to ever, like, exist in the history of faith, right? To understand about life, and new life, and resurrection, and it's beautiful, uh, wonderful thing that we celebrate from history, it's powerful. But it could be so much more powerful if we harness it with Lent, which is kind of tough in Western traditions because we're all about triumphalism and just winning, and we never want to actually talk about what it takes to walk through the valleys of life, you know, that somehow there's something wrong with us if we slow down right? And Lent is the season to reflect on that. So Lent is kind of this 40-day period from what's called, on the church calendar, Ash Wednesday to Holy Thursday, or sometimes Holy Saturday, depending on your tradition. And as I mentioned yesterday, I'm not super religious, so the fact that it's supposed to happen on Wednesday doesn't faze me one bit. Uh, So today we're imposing ashes. We're going to pretend it's Ash Wednesday. I don't answer to the Pope, so it's all good, all right? (laughs) It's a little privilege of being Protestant, all right? There's some downgrades, but you know, I can do Ash Wednesday on a Sunday, it's okay. Nobody's gonna yell at me. Um, so it's this period, right? And it really, we have like, we have like evidence or, or like shadows of this from as early as the second century, just like 130 years after Jesus, that we see this tradition of fasting Pre Easter, Like we, we see it in some of the writings. And what happened originally, it, as it developed, it was a time for what were called officiants. They were people who were, or novice, excuse me. They were, they were coming in and they were gonna become part of the church and they were getting baptized on Easter. So it was this season right before Easter where the novitiates, they were getting ready to be initiated into the church and they would have these 40 days of preparation for their baptism on Easter. And what happened was very quickly, this 40 day period, kind of everybody was like, well, I want in on that. <laughs> And so it just kind of became a space for every person in the church to prepare their hearts for Easter. And so Lent became and is this season of focused contemplation, right? And that's really what our anchor verse, so every series that we put together here, we kind of choose one piece of wisdom from our tradition, from our scriptures, uh, that we say, let's ground everything that we're going to talk about in this one Verse. So if you really think about it, um, we actually spend six weeks on one sentence <laughs> It's kind of what happens. And our anchor verse for this series is a beautiful prayer, it's found in Psalm 119. Psalm is a book of prayer, a book of songs from our tradition, from the Jewish tradition, beautiful, beautiful literature. And there's this prayer. And what I want to encourage everybody, you're going to see is one of our next steps is to, to memorize this and to really internalize it over the next six weeks. And here's what this prayer says. It's a beautiful prayer. It says, bend my heart toward your instructions and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. With your ways, give me life. That's a good prayer. Some of you are like, I didn't know that was in there. (laughs) Like, what a beautiful prayer. Bend my heart toward your instructions and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. With your ways, give me life. And what this verse is driving home, what this prayer in antiquity that we can apply to our lives today, is a condition of life where we are constantly looking to bend our lives towards wholeness, towards love. We might say, bend my heart toward the instructions of love and not towards selfish gain. Right? As as humanity continues to evolve and to think about the divine, oftentimes in less theistic terms as we navigate the realities of pain and suffering in our world, there's still so much beauty in this prayer, this disposition of the heart, that there is a way that we can live where it's towards selfish gain, and what I want are my eyes to see these things and to turn away from them because they're worthless. They don't produce life. There is a way that produces life. So during Lent, what we're gonna do this series, we're gonna contemplate the power of wind. Wind that bends us. Now, I don't know about you, I was a little new to this thing called wind when I moved out here. <laughs> I mean, we had wind, don't get me wrong, but, like, we really shouldn't call what I experienced the, rest, the first 43 years of my life as wind compared to here. Now, granted, we had tornadoes, totally different category of wind in, you know, the Midwest where I grew up or in Indiana, but, like, I mean, the wind here is something else. Like, I walk outside, it's like there's a wind tunnel. Like, are we testing turbines in my neighborhood? Like, what is going on here? So, the front range, like, we know what wind is all about. We know the power of it. And so, this season, we want to reflect on some spiritual or emotional winds that can easily break us if we're not careful. That if we try to lean into that or if we try to hold ourselves towards that wind, it will actually cause harm and damage to our spiritual lives, our souls. And so we want to talk about that. We want to talk about how do we, in the face of that wind that's blowing into our spirits, right, that, that what we, I would say like that anti-Christ wind, the anti-love wind, how do we bend toward the instructions of love so that w- that wind doesn't break us? Does that make sense? If that makes sense, type in the chat one. <laughs> that's what they say in <laughs> webinars right? Does that make sense? Well, we want to just say there's winds that blow into our lives, and if we try to stand there, we'll snap. But if we can bend with it in a way in which God, love, the divine mystery, whatever word you like to use, right, has revealed to us, then it won't break us. See, we always have a choice. We always have a choice. We always have a choice. We can bend with the Spirit of God. That's the way our tradition calls it. Or we can bend against it. And when that wind blows and we bend against it, there's a tendency for things to snap in our lives, right? And so this wind of the Spirit, or there's the wind of our flesh, right, which is the way the Apostle Paul would talk about these things. And it's, there's two ways of being, and they kind of fight for control. And which way are we gonna lean into? And I wanna start this Lent season today, real quickly, by just considering the power of a very, very, very strong wind, and that is the wind of guilt, That is the wind of guilt. So hang in there with me for a few minutes as we kind of take this big idea. I want to focus this in because each week we're going to look at one powerful wind and our bending towards the way of God so that that wind doesn't break us. All right. So we're going to start with the power of guilt. Now, the wind of guilt can break the soul. How many of you have ever had a guilty conscience? Raise your hand up nice and high and we'll wait for everybody Because if you've never had a guilty conscience, we need to know because security should be a little closer to you. We would call that a pathology of sorts. Guilt is powerful. We use words like crushed by guilt, crushed by guilt. And I don't know about you, but I have felt that. Like I have known that I have done something that has wounded someone and I have felt the weight of that guilt, the crushing weight of that guilt. Now, guilt can actually, in a sense, the, the big spectrum of the word guilt can serve as a moral compass in our lives. It can motivate us as individuals to take responsibility for our actions, to point us in a direction. But excessive or unresolved guilt is detrimental to our mental well-being, is detrimental to our emotional well-being. And you know what? Humans have known this since the beginning of time. It's why our spiritual tradition starts with a story about the absolving of guilt feelings. The story of Adam and Eve. It's a picture, it's a metaphor, it's, a, it's, it's there. It's right at the beginning. Oh, I might get myself in trouble here. Just, just stick with me, okay? I believe, not everybody believes this. I, you know, a part of learning is unlearning. That's what I've learned. (laughs) Right? A huge part of, of, I think Yoda said it best, right? (laughs) You cannot learn until you've unlearned, right? Okay, so, I, I I, I believe that humanity invented the sacrificial system. Why? I'm not saying it wasn't a good thing, or I'm just saying that as a neutral statement. Like, I don't believe that I, I just don't believe that this being in the sky said one day, I am really frustrated with you all. I need you to start killing animals so I can feel better about our relationship. Okay, you tracking with me so far? When I say it like that, you're like, oh yeah, that does kind of seem silly. Okay, okay, but the beauty of humanity and the, 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 the resiliency of humanity is we know the power and the weight of guilt and so we have to deal with it somehow. And so along the evolution of human life and the way we think about the divine, somewhere along the way, and every culture has done this, we picked up, well, where there's sin, there's death. Where I I harm someone, something has to die. And so animal sacrifice took over. It just just came on the scene. (laughs) It was like, it's no pet rock. This is gonna stay around for a while. And and so it was a way in which humanity learned to deal in a healthier way than killing each other. Right? It's a way in which humanity said, okay, here's how I can remain in, good con- in a good relationship with the gods. Unless we imagine that the ancient Israelites were in some way believed that there was truly only one God, Just you have to read the scriptures, our scriptures a little more carefully because there is clearly a pantheon of gods in the realm of ancient Israel. And, and ancient Israel was in itself figuring out in a very inspired way to deal with all of this. Right, so it's not that the Ten Commandments says there are no other gods, don't be an idiot. It says you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see the difference? It's like let other cultures do what they want to, but you'll just have one that you'll deal with. And we have all kinds of evidence and we can even see it in ancient Israelite that people had household gods along with the the major God of Yahweh, right? But it's this beautiful way in which we deal with guilt because guilt has been with us for a long time. And we have phrases like racked with guilt. And it comes from that image of the torture device, the rack. (laughs) Because we know that guilt, when it's unprocessed, when it's not handled, when it's not dealt with, and it sits on us, it is like this torturing, emotional distress, physical distress. And, And all of our social sciences are confirming this. It's beautiful, right? If our spiritual tradition, which dates back millennia, is basically at a big level saying guilt is a problem. We have to deal with your guilt, right? Social sciences are kind of catching up. (laughs) And they're saying, yeah, now we've studied this stuff and we know that guilt leads to shame and depression and anxiety and paranoia and all of these things. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Now we have to ask the question, well, what is the counterwind of guilt? What do we, if we're not gonna let guilt break us, what do we bend towards? What is the gift of the divine that we bend ourselves towards to help us navigate the weight of guilt. Sometimes it's guilt that we shouldn't feel, but our culture puts it on us. Our tradition, our families of origin, whatever. Sometimes it's genuine guilt that we should feel, right? And we're not talking about those of you that should feel guilty and you don't feel guilty. That's a totally different sermon, (laughs) right? We're talking about how do we deal with the weight of our guilt? And what does our tradition give us? What do we see happening, right? So the instruction of our anchor verse, the prayer, the big prayer is, okay, bend my heart towards what will give me life. So here's the thing. The instructions of God, according to our ancestors, however we think about the word God, is this beautiful word that we all hate, repentance. (laughs) You see, a heart bent towards repentance creates resiliency against the winds of guilt. It's a windshield. That's what repentance is. And so repentance is the spiritually healthy response to the whispers of our conscience when we start to feel the weight of something that we have done, some wound that we've created. I'm not a big fan of the word sin, okay? And some of you know this if you've been around for a few years, and it's not because I don't believe sin exists. I just believe we've misused the word sin so much that we miss kind of the power of the word itself. So what you might submit in your own way of thinking about this is the word wound and wounding. So all have wounded and fall short of the glory of God. Does that make sense? Because some of us, the word sin gets attached to like moral behaviors that really are are just time conditioned like moral realities of what our, our culture says is right and wrong. But the weight of sin, and I think the big idea of sin, the sin that pervades our world is about wounding. And I talk about sin in our Fresh Perspective group, which if you haven't gone through Fresh Perspective, you definitely should check that out, is the escalatory violence of our world. Like sin is the, th- is the power that exists in our world that pushes us to violence, to othering, to dehumanizing, to eliminating. It's fundamentalism, right? And we all wound at some level, and we've all experienced the wound at some level, and that wound marks us and shapes us, and that's the power of sin. Our ta- the, the, our tradition calls it the power of sin, but it really is the power of a wound. And unless that wound is healed, unless there's some way of inter- some intervention into that, what happens? We are marked by it, and it hinders our our whole productivity in life. Right. So this idea of repentance is how do we deal with not the wounds of others in our lives, but the reality that I'm wounding others. And I know that this is not everybody's favorite word, and it's like, oh my gosh, because we've used it to like, manipulate and get people to join a small group or to give in the offering. I get that, I, I do, but I cannot resign. I can't hand over the word to unhealthy spirituality because you can't have healthy spirituality without an understanding of this concept of repentance. And repentance should never be about shame. It should never be seen as something ugly in our lives because it's a gift. Our tradition gives us this beautiful gift to help us navigate the weight of guilt. And so so what does it mean? So the the, the biblical or theological word for those whispers of the conscious, you know what I said, like, repentance is the the healthy response to the whispers of the conscious? Well, the biblical word for the whispers of our conscious, when it's guilty and it's telling you you need to go say you're sorry, or hey, don't ever do that again, or all that stuff. The Bible, and our tradition calls that conviction, right? There's a conviction that's happening in our lives. There's a convicting spirit, a convicting voice, right? That's, that's kind of the Bible word for it. And the Bible word for the weight of guilt, the unhealthy weight of guilt, we would call that, like the scripture would call that condemnation or shame. Because these are two things that are very different. Conviction is very powerful and important and wonderful and healthy. Condemnation is different. Conviction is about wounding behavior. I'm identifying a wounding behavior that I have, and I'm repenting of it and I'm seeking to change that. Condemnation is this, is this, you are a wounder and you are not worthy of God's love. You can't be in God's presence, that's condemnation. Now granted, that's the message of the gospel in many settings, but that's, I don't think that's biblical gospel. I think conviction that says there are actions that I do that come from a place of wounding <laughs> and woundedness and I wound others and this is a vicious cycle, right? And so the weight of guilt in our lives and ignoring the whispers, right? When we ignore the whispers of conviction, of our conscience, we live in a space of guilt, we live in a space of shame, we hide. And we have all kinds of reasons why we would do that. But Jesus believed that repentance was necessary if you're going to live under the rule of God or the kingdom of God, if you prefer that more gendered language right? To live under the rule of God. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus enters the scene in the story of Jesus according to Mark. Remember, we have one gospel and four according tos, (laughs) different perspectives on it. Mark, Jesus enters the scene with his baptism by John. He was a disciple of John. The historical Jesus was a disciple of John, a follower of John, and something happened along the way. And he said, wait, I think John's close, but he's not quite there. And something happens, it seems, in the life of the historical Jesus when his mentor, I know we don't like to think of Jesus having a mentor, but it, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm like, man, I need a Jesus who needs mentored. Because I need to be mentored, and I can follow that example, right? So he's following kind of the teachings of John. John is arrested really because he is, he is just head on attacking, right? And he's got this message that included repentance, by the way, John's did. But when John is arrested, It says that Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So he's kind of taking John's message but he really is adapting it and he says the time is fulfilled and the rule of God or the kingdom of God, you might have heard it called, the rule of God has come near which is different than is coming, it's here. The kingdom of God is here, it's present. He says, repent and believe in the good news. So Jesus understands this concept, this idea of acknowledging our nature of wounding one another is is vital if we're gonna live into it. So a healthy understanding of repentance, real quickly. A healthy understanding of repentance understands that repentance, all right, hang on to this one for a second, okay, is not about God. What we call God, it's about us. Just like every spiritual discipline that we employ into our lives, it's never about the divine. We don't pray so the divine will. We don't give so that the divine will. We don't fast so that the divine will. That's if-then spirituality, it's voodoo. It's like Harry Potter magic incantations, right? Which I'm a huge Potterhead, so don't take that as like a, dis- I'm not. <laughs> it's just called fantasy for a reason. <laughs> So that type of spirituality produces a lot of pain and heartache in our lives. But spiritual disciplines like repentance and prayer and fasting are about us. It's about who we are in this world, how we occupy our space, right? How we live and breathe and and move inside of God. And so healthy repentance focuses on restoring not an imaginary broken relationship with God, because your your relationship with God and I know this is gonna sound strange, but I, you, can know, you can't separate yourself from God any more than a fish can separate itself from water. Make sense? Like the saturation level of God in the universe is 100%. <laughs> now we can choose to live in that, we can choose to swim and we can choose, and, and, there's, and there's always a choice involved. But the reality of, our, 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 our intimacy and our connection to the divine, I believe is like that fish in water analogy. And so repentance isn't about somehow throwing ourselves back in the fish pole. <laughs> like we wiggled our way out of water and like God is just happy to watch us flail around and die because that's what we deserve until we ask, hey, will you put us back in the fishbowl, God? No, it's, 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 it's living with a recognition, right? Repentance is kind of recognizing I'm swimming in God, but boy, I've been like biting all the other fish. <laughs> I gotta stop doing that, right? So repentance is this spiritual practice that empowers us to deal with the power of guilt and shame, right? So healthy repentance is not about I've broken some relationship with God. God can't be near me until I repent and I can bridge that gap and I really can't ever repent good enough, so somebody needs to take my punishment. That's a theory on the cross that is not one that I and many hold, many others hold. But repentance is this decision to humbly take responsibility for the pain of our actions regardless of our intentions. That's like the master's degree level of repentance, right? So let's break this down, humble. Set aside our pride and we honor the fact that I have done something that caused pain. My intentions don't matter, right? I just ignore, that's humility. My actions have wounded. To take responsibility, right, is to attempt to change my way of being as it relates to that person that I've wounded. So if there's an action, a behavior that I'm doing that I can change, that I can work on, then I work on that. I take responsibility. If, this is, if there's something I need to stop doing or start doing, I, I live into that. But there could be, part of repentance could be a boundary that I have to set up in place because regardless of my attempts, my very existence hurts someone. And so I set up a boundary marker, right? There, there is that reality. Part of repentance is acknowledging how do, I, how do I stop wounding a person? And sometimes that's just a boundary that says, well, I can't be in a close, intimate relationship with this person because my values are in direct contradiction and they get hurt by me and I don't want to be hurting them. So I, I, I set that boundary. Jesus talked about it as shaking the dust off your sandals, right, when we don't find a person of peace. Doesn't mean they're evil or anything. It just, this doesn't work. And then intentions, and this is the big trip up that most of us get into is because we think our intentions matter and they don't. So if you're sitting here and you are over the age of 30 and you still think your intentions matter when you hurt someone, I want to give you a word from the Lord this morning. Grow up. Grow up. Your intentions and my intentions do not matter when it comes to guilt and pain and and dealing with it. Like there's just something about that that says, well, well, I didn't mean to. Okay you've still fractured the universe of someone's life. What you meant to do, well, what does that have to do with the price of coffee, right? I mean, at some point, we have to just recognize, "I, I hurt that person. Gosh. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a terrible person. In fact, there's something really freeing about honoring that, oh, my gosh, I hurt you. I, I, I got to change that. To explain to me how, to, like, and we work through that process. So ultimately, healthy repentance, not unhealthy repentance, that's focused on God and what God needs from us so that we can get in relation with God, which is the exact opposite of grace, which is the exact opposite of what the whole Protestant Reformation is founded on, right? But repentance really is about this relationship with myself and others and how I acknowledge that. So I'm not restoring some, damaged relationship with God, that's a lie that needs to be dealt with in and of itself. Because I'm holding on to this truth. What can separate me from the love of God? Neither height nor depth. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. No matter what I've ever done, no matter what I ever will do, nothing can ever separate me from the love of God. Because God is love and I'm swimming in it. But I can recognize that I can still wound in the midst of that. So here's our prayer for this week. So each week we're gonna give a prayer. And it's a bending prayer. And this is the prayer for this week. Bend my heart towards repentance so guilt does not break me. Bend my heart towards repentance so guilt does not break me. And we live into this in our everyday normal lives by asking ourselves a couple of questions, right? You have that conversation with yourself, right? And so we say this, how can repentance bring healing in my life? Am I suffering under the weight of guilt is a relationship that I have with someone suffering under the weight of a wound that I produced, whether it was intentional or not. If it was unintentional, it just means it's a whole lot easier for you to work on the restorative part in yourself. It was intentional. That's a different story. That's like start saving up money for the therapy appointments because we got to work through some deep stuff when we start intentionally hurting people. We do it. I mean, I'm not, that's not a condemning statement. It's just we do. So where is there a space where repentance can be healing? Because that's, that's the beauty of it. It's not, I, I, I'm getting, <laughs> how many of y'all like, or have heard of the hymn Amazing Grace? Oh man, I remember that hymn. I've grown to not really like that hymn. Can I just say that out loud and not get fired? It's, I don't even know if it's a prerequisite to be called a pastor and you have to like Amazing Grace. Because, The phrase, like, for such a worm as I, whoa, would anyone raise their children thinking that they're just a worm, not worthy of my love? Would you ever do that? If you would, like, we have a parenting course we're going to develop. We call that, like, manipulation and control and brainwashing. It's a metaphor. I get it. We feel that way. How many of y'all ever felt like a worm? I get it. See? And that's why we're given repentance, because we feel like it, but it's part of the big cosmic lie that we live under, right? You're not a worm. You're not. I already told you, you're a fish living in one. It's two <laughs> totally different things. No, the metaphors all break down. Next question. What am I experiencing? Where am I experiencing, excuse me, the weight of guilt that's perhaps even crushing a relationship or my own soul? Where am I? So you ask yourself that question. Where am I ignoring or unwilling to accept that my actions have harmed someone? So now how do I take responsibility for that? How do I turn over a new leaf as it relates to that person? You do some consideration. You talk, get some great advice, some wisdom from people you trust. One of my favorite quotes is from Maya Angelo. And she said, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. There's, I mean, there's so much in this quote. It's, it's brilliant, it's inspired, it should be canonized. We should add, this This is, this is to me is more powerful than the book of Revelation. I would replace this quote with the book of Revelation any day of the week if it were up to me, but nobody's asking. I haven't got that call from the Pope yet. Ryan, what should we replace Revelation with? Me, Maya Angelou's quote. Do the best you, because that's the book of Revelation. They were just doing the best, and now we know better, so we should be cautious with that book. Right, but like, that's it, right? So, I'm doing the best I can, and, and in the best I can, I wound, and now I know better, and so I'm gonna do better, right? So that's, that's what it looks like. That's healthy repentance. Thank you, Maya Angel. That's what it is. And I wanna encourage us this season to all participate in the three pillars of Lent, to really leverage it in our lives. So the three pillars of Lent are everybody's favorite. <laughs> Prayer, fasting, and the traditional phrase is almsgiving. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So to participate means... to to take advantage of these three pillars and bring them into your life in an intentional way, more so than you normally do. So we can do this really practically. One, we can all meditate daily with that bending prayer. So we can take five minutes and we can say that bending prayer. (sighs) Bend my heart towards repentance so that guilt does not break me. Bend, bend. What does it mean for me to bend my heart? Not run away from repentance. Repentance to acknowledge I need repentance, right? So we can do that. That's prayer. Prayer Prayer's about what we give our attention to. That's really what prayer's about and what I want to give my attention to. And so it invites us to live in partnership with the divine every moment of our lives, to be aware that we're swimming in some water, to live enlightened. So that's prayer. So check that box on your Connect card if you haven't yet um, and get signed up and you'll get a daily devotion, the bending prayer, you'll have that. Just every day, just figure out, incorporate that into your life, right? So that's the prayer side of it. And then I wanna encourage you to create space in your life through a personal fast, okay? Again, fasting, we could spend all kinds of time on it. There's spiritually healthy ways to fast and there's spiritually unhealthy ways to fast. So I just wanna encourage you to recognize that fasting is ultimately about what we give our time to. Okay, so if prayer is what we give our attention to, fasting is what we give our time to. And so a fast invites us to maximize the moments of our life for our well-being and the well-being of our world by saying, okay, what can I stop doing for a season? What in my life is taking a little bit too much market share up? And how do I set that aside and make room? I love what Kia and I were having this conversation a couple weeks ago, and she used this. She says, I like to think of fasting as making room for something beautiful in my life. Isn't that good? That was Kia right there. She's brilliant. She should be up here preaching. I tell her that all the time. She won't, she won't do it, though. How many of you would like to hear Kia preach? Just raise your hand. I'm nice. See? <laughs> Kia? Come on. I'll sing. She'll preach. it would be a total disaster, the music. Listen. And it's true. Fasting is about creating space for things that are of extreme importance. So we just say, what's what's taking up too much space? And if you're not sure what it is, ask somebody close to you. They'll tell you. They'll tell you, especially if you ask. What's taking up too much of my time? What's not producing life like it should? What's starting to control me rather than me controlling it? And we give that up. We just give it up. Just for a season. Don't have to shake, right? You know, don't, don't start freaking out like you got to give it up forever. Just a season. And then I want to encourage all of us to be generous through intentional giving. Giving. Some people don't like to talk about giving. I love to talk about giving. You know why I love to talk about giving? Because giving has changed my life. And I love it. I love giving. I, I, I just do. I think it is so wonderful to get to try and be a generous person. And I love what we do here, and so I love to talk about giving to the work here. But I get that people have had bad experiences with church, right? But here's the thing about generosity. Generosity is about what we give value to, okay? Value to. And so when we give of our financial worth, we're we're putting treasure where our heart is. We're saying this is valuable, and it frees us from the worthless things of the world. And so I wanna encourage every person in here, everybody, say everybody, to give financially during this seasonal and for 40 days. And I would hope that you would value this place and you would give to this place a little extra. But this is why we do our um, uh, pieces worth it. Christmas to Easter, we have this season of extra giving. This year, our goal is to raise about $100,000. And it, is, it, it goes out, we give grants away to those working against the five unacceptables. We're creating a benevolence fund to help folks in our church that are, uh, that are in difficult circumstances. We use it with our adventure center and with our kids. I, I would hope that you'd find value in that and give a little extra during this time. We're about halfway there. We're a little over halfway there for our goal. But here's the deal. If, if, you, don't, if you don't know whether or not you value this church, I totally get it. Or maybe you've had a bad experience with church. Find something that you value and give to that organization, okay? And, and I'm not talking, listen, I'm not talking about like a one-time $5 gift, okay? I'm talking about, we were talking about this earlier, like the phrase that church, we would use all the time, which would be like super manipulative, was like, give till it hurts. <laughs> but I want to encourage you to give till it heals. Give till your giving heals the world and heals you of the power of greed and me of the power of greed. And, and that's different for all of us. But, but do it intentionally over these next 40 days. If you're going to do it here, just write on your giving envelope, your donation, like Partners in Hope, and and do that. If, if, you, if, if your heart is for that humane society, give there. If your heart is towards… well, um, there's some beautiful organizations in our community that we partner with. Give to them. Because the point of giving is not to meet the budget of the church. I mean, it's an added benefit. But the point is that we become generous people and that we change the world and that really so that money doesn't have power over us. That's what this is all about. Does that make sense? If that makes sense, type it to the chat. Okay, good. All right. And then we can all internalize the anchor verse. Say that anchor verse once a day, twice a day. Put it up on your mirror when you brush your teeth, right? Bend my heart. Bend my heart toward your instructions. Bend my heart toward your instructions and not toward selfish pain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. With your ways, give me life. And if we'll do these things, if we'll lean into the three pillars of Lent, if we'll live this out, in Lent, we discover the power of a cruciform life. I love this word, a cruciform life, a life that lives out this beautiful metaphor of death and resurrection, right? Because in this season of Lent, this tradition, we learn these three practices, they produce death in us and life in us. Right? That's what they do. So prayer is kind of death to a life of autonomy. I don't need to be in relationship with God or others, but we put that life to death so that what is resurrected is a life full of divine strength and intimacy and mystery. Fasting is death to a life of instant gratification so that we can be resurrected to a life full of intentional outcomes. We set aside our instant gratification. We let that die. And what comes out of the grave is a life of intentional outcomes where we say, I don't have to do just because everybody else is. I don't have to do that. And then giving is death to a life driven by my own wants and my own desires so that I can be resurrected to a life filled with the joy of helping others in their time of need. So today, we're gonna receive communion. I'm gonna invite everyone to stand if you're able. If you are not able to stand and come and receive communion, um, I would just encourage those of you at the tables to um, uh, help. So maybe receive the communion elements. And we will have a, a person who is imposing ashes. Um, just keep an eye out. And if you're not able to come forward and you want ashes imposed, we'll come to you. Okay, does that make sense? So as we have communion today, we're gonna participate in this ancient tradition of imposing ashes. And there's significance in this. So what happens is these ashes are gonna be imposed on your forehead in the shape of a cross. Um, by imposed, we're not gonna like jam, jam this real light. Um, And these are actually the ashes of, traditionally, they're the ashes of the palms from last year's uh, Palm Sunday. That's traditionally what they are. And ashes in the scriptures are a sign of repentance uh, all throughout. They're also a sign of cleansing. They're a sign of renewal. They're a reminder that you and I are marked, that we live a cruciform life. We live with the hope of resurrection, And they remind us of the shortness of life, the brevity of life, that from dust, these bodies are formed into dust, they will return. And so it marks the entrance of a season in our lives where we're meant to realize you got to make the most of those two bookends, where from dust you start and dust you return. What are we going to do with the in-between? It's a great annual reminder of that. So this morning, I want to come and invite you to receive ashes and communion. And together they give us this beautiful, beautiful reminder that while we are sinners, we own it, we are wounders. While we are, we are loved beautifully by the divine and we are called to give that love to others and that produces a a space where I can be humble enough to go, oh, I hurt you, oh my gosh, my intentions don't matter, I can't believe I did that. I I feel the weight of it. And repentance is the process of releasing that weight in a healthy way, it's a beautiful gift that our tradition gives us. So the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. From dust you have come to dust you will return. Take the days that you have been given and use them to sow seeds of love and joy and peace. And so that one day there will be a harvest of what you have invested your life into while your ashes are sitting and spread, you can know that your life made a difference. Just like the life of Jesus. And in that way, you're resurrected in a beautiful, beautiful way.